This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. On the afternoon of March 11, 1911, a fire broke out at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in Manhattan. That fire would kill 146 workers. It would prove to be the worst workplace disaster that New York would see until September 11, 2001. And the fire would also be a catalyst for both labor organizing and factory safety improvements. This weekend on Fordham Conversations, we are looking back on the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. My guest today is Daniel Sawyer. Sawyer is an associate professor of history at Fordham, and he is the editor of the book A Coat of Many Colors, Immigration, Globalization, and Reform in New York's Garment Industry. That book's out from Fordham Press. He joined me in the studio last week, and we talked about the Triangle Factory, about what happened after the fire, and we talked about what lessons we can learn from that disaster in this age of global production. Daniel Sawyer, welcome. Thank you. Now, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire in 1911 was a real watershed moment in labor history. But the story of what happened on that day might not be one that we really remember all that well. Tell me about the fire. Well, this was a fire that broke out towards the end of the workday in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. And this factory was uh, a block east of Washington Square Park in a building which still stands today as part of New York University. The building itself was fireproof, and the building itself was not uh, significantly structurally damaged. But the, the the contents of the factory, which, if I remember correctly, were, were, was on the eighth and ninth floors of the building, was, of course, not fireproof. And it uh, the fire spread very quickly. It spread through the elevator shaft. Some of the doors were locked to keep the workers in during the day so they wouldn't go out to take uh, unauthorized breaks and or steal uh, fabric. And so many, many uh, workers were trapped in this fire. In the end, 146 workers died, either from burns or from smoke or from jumping from the windows. Uh, most of them were young women, teenagers in their early 20s. Most of them were either Jewish or Italian immigrants. Why was this such a, a stunning thing to so many people? Uh, well, it was certainly, I believe to this day, the uh, largest uh, industrial disaster in New York City's history, if you don't count the World Trade Center attack. And one of the worst, in terms of loss of life, one of the one of the few worst uh, disasters in the city's history. And I think also there was something else about it, which was that a couple of things. One was that um, it was very graphically played out in, in full public view. The fire department r- arrived on the scene, but their equipment was in- inadequate to reach the, the floors with the, which the fire was taking place. And so, you know, in full view of many, many witnesses, including many, many reporters uh, for the newspapers, uh, these uh, young women were jumping to their deaths. And it was uh, very gruesome and very kind of uh, sensational and upsetting. Another reason is that the casualties were very concentrated in certain populations, certain communities, namely the immigrant Jewish community and the immigrant Italian community. So uh, the effects of it were felt in a very concentrated kind of way. And for these communities and these neighborhoods, it was a very devastating thing, hundreds of you know people affecting uh, many, many families. You also say that it was a um, a symbol of unchecked capitalist greed, and because of that, it became a real departure point for a lot of labor activism. Tell mm-hmm. me about that. 
one thing that's important to to note, which might surprise people, is that the Triangle factory was not a sweatshop. Um, but nevertheless, it was a shop in which the bosses had kind of complete arbitrary control. There was very little check on their power. And some of their practices were such that they displayed uh, kind of uh, reckless um, um, disregard uh, for their workers' safety and their workers' lives in the end. And so when people saw this uh, disaster, they immediately saw, said, well, this is what happens in a situation of unchecked capitalism. This sparked a lot of different kinds of activity. The socialist movement was already fairly strong in the in the Jewish community, and the unions had already in the last couple of years started to make many gains. There had been a general strike of shirtwaist makers throughout the industry just um, about a little over a year before, and it had been sparked at the Triangle uh, factory. And so it's another reason why I think it was in the public eye so much is that people will, had already heard of the factory and had heard of the workers who worked there because they had been involved in this big strike. And these movements, the socialist movement and also the labor movement, which was very closely allied with the socialists, was very much spurred on and to further growth and to further activity uh, by the fire. But also some mainstream politicians from very surprising political backgrounds, Tammany Hall politicians uh, who had never been really known for their zeal for social reform or their concern for this kind of thing, started to get involved. There was a factory investigation commission statewide uh, after the fire to investigate safety conditions all over the state in factories. They investigated not only the fire, but conditions all over the state. And they were shocked by what they saw. And they started to get involved very heavily in social reform efforts. They started to make very unlikely alliances, these these kind of hard-bitten, tough Tammany Hall Catholic men from very kind of uh, masculine and kind of macho kind of surroundings, uh, started to ally themselves with these kind of upper-class Protestant female reformers, uh, and a couple of Jews as well in, in this class, and uh, including Francis Perkins, Bell Moskowitz, and, and Eleanor Roosevelt. And um, as a group, they became very important in social reform politics for the next uh, 40 years, 30, 40 years. So uh, all these people who kind of met in the aftermath of the Triangle Fire went on to play very important roles, not only in New York, but also nationwide. I want to talk more about what happened afterwards in a minute, but I do want to ask you, um, about the shirtwaist, because you mentioned that mm-hmm. it was a very popular piece of clothing, okay. but it was actually much more than that. It was this really revolutionary thing, not only for women to wear, but also in terms of women's work, wasn't it? Well, it was. Um, it was. Uh, it's a relatively. It's a blouse, and uh, it some. It had more or less uh, kind of ornament, ornamentation and lace and things like the embroidery, uh, and it was worn with a skirt. And this is a, a revolutionary, I think, in terms of fashion because it's very, very simple compared to what women have been wearing, uh, in, you know, through the late 19th century. Um, and so it was maybe a little bit of a forerunner of the revolution that really happens later in the 20s in terms of women's fashion in, in, uh, in terms of being more freer and lighter 
easier to move around in and easier to, to, to use and so on. In terms of women's work, most of the workers in this industry were women. In general, the majority of workers in the garment industry were women, but it did very much depend on the branch of the industry. Most cloak makers, that is, makers of coats, heavier clothing, were men, but most waist makers were uh, women. The shirtwaist actually went out of style by the 1920s and was replaced by dresses, and uh, most of the dressmakers were women as well. Was the shirtwaist also one of the first uh, pieces of women's clothing to be mass manufactured? Yeah, the the whole industry arose at the end of the 19th century. It was a little bit behind men's clothing, which started to be mass-produced in significant amounts uh, in after the Civil War. In the early 19th century, most people, if they had the money, they commissioned to have their clothes custom-made. They didn't have money. They either made it themselves or they bought second-hand clothing. Early in the 19th century, some garments started to be mass-produced, uh, but these were mainly kind of loose-fitting, often low-quality garments, mainly made for people who either didn't care or couldn't care what they looked like, like slaves in the South or sailors who went to sea. Around the time of the Civil War, there was a huge revolution in garment manufacture in general. First of all, the sewing machine came in in the 1850s, and this was the the major technological advance that made possible the mass production of clothing. Then during the Civil War, uh, the Union had to clothe millions of men in uniform, and they developed for the first time standard sizing charts. And so after the Civil War, for the first time, you see clothing mass produced for men who do care what they look like and want to look good. And they can now buy suits off the rack have them altered slightly and, and have them fit. Uh, women's clothing lagged behind a little bit, partly because it was more complicated uh, and also because fashions changed uh, more volatilely. So they changed every year. So there was a little bit of a lag. It was a little bit more complicated. But by the end of the 19th century, the women's wear industry was catching up and New York City was the center of the women's wear uh, industry, much more than men's wear. It had a huge share of the men's wear too, but at, at its peak, uh, New York made uh, over 70% of the women's garments produced in, in the United States. So this is where the industry was focused. So these workers in the Triangle Shop, they were not alone. They were part of the largest manufacturing industry in New York City and uh, a very important manufacturing center in the country. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest in the studio this week is Fordham historian Daniel Sawyer, and we're talking about the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Next week on Fordham Conversations, we will take another look at early 20th century life, going to the movies during the Great Depression. That's next week on the show. Now, let's get back to my conversation with Daniel Sawyer. Now, the the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire is remembered primarily because of its place in labor history. Can you tell me what things were like for laborers before and what changed afterward? Well, there was already a transition, as I mentioned before, going on from these small shops to some larger shops like the Triangle. I think this was spurred afterwards. But the main thing was that uh, on the state level and eventually on the national level 20 years later, there started to be more regulation in terms of conditions, in terms of safety, 
hours and wages. And also the unions started to uh, have more power, although this, this waxed and waned. The unions had periods in which they were very strong, and then they had some hard times during the 20s, and they came back in the 30s. But they were also very influential in making sure that there were minimum standards for wages, uh, minimum standards for conditions, and that uh, through their unions, uh, workers could counter this kind of arbitrary power of the boss, that the boss didn't have pure uh, say over what went on in the shops or how he could treat the workers. Uh, I think this was very, actually very important, and especially in the garment industry because, say, unlike, let's say, Detroit, where you had the automobile industry, or Pittsburgh, where you had the steel industry, and you had huge factories, sometimes employing thousands of workers, and uh, a few companies, and uh, it took a lot of capital to go into these industries. The garment industry was always very dispersed, and there was always a lot of work done by contractors and you know, small contractors with small shops. Even in the heyday of the Triangle Company, most shops in, in New York were much, much smaller, averaging, I think, 30, 35 workers. There were thousands of shops in New York. You could walk down a street in a variety of neighborhoods earlier in the Lower East Side in the tenement districts, and uh, there would be shops on all sides of you. One government investigating commission in the 1890s, they asked them, when you went to investigate, how did you know where to go to find shops? They said, well, we walked walk down the street, and where we heard the machines from the windows, we went in. That's how we knew there was a factory in, these, in this building. Even later, when the, after around 1910 and, and still later in the 1920s, uh, when the garment, what we know now as the garment district came into being in, the, in Midtown, still it was, these buildings looked like office buildings. And this made the industry very hard to, to police the conditions in, and the unions decided, the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, which represented workers in the women's garment industry, and the Amalgamated Clothing Workers' Union, uh, which uh, represented workers in the men, men's industry, uh, kind of early on decided that they were the most centralized force in the business, and they were going to have to take the lead in making sure the business was organized and maintained uh, certain standards and so on. So uh, they pressed for all kinds of industry-wide boards and panels and commissions in which they had representation and the bosses also had representation, but the unions often were, had the stronger hand. And this is something which happened not solely because of the Triangle Fire, but certainly was spurred on by it. Just out of curiosity, what happened to the Triangle Shirtwaist Company? If I remember uh, correctly... I believe the the triangle itself closed down, but the the two owners were tried and acquitted of negligence. They went on to form a new factories. I think one of them was a little bit chastened by his experience. The other one was not, and he was cited later on on a number of occasions for similar conditions that led to the tragedy and the fire. So paint me a picture. You mentioned the unions um, stepping in at this time and becoming organized. What was the culture of labor organizing and the fight against it like at this time? It seems like it was pretty rough and tumble. It was very difficult. The unions, you should know, were very heavily influenced by socialist ideology. So they had a kind of uh, philosophy of class struggle and kind of militancy at the time. 
they were also very close to the communities in which the ethnic communities in which they worked, especially the Jewish community. There was always a little bit of a tension within the union between the Italians and the Jews. And the Jews who were the majority of workers had the leadership of the of the union was largely Jewish at the time. Later, uh, there was an Italian group that was kind of brought in and, and the kind of tensions calmed down a little bit. But they were very rooted, therefore, also in their neighborhoods and in the communities. And they were fighting against bosses who were also themselves immigrants, mostly. So this was a very, you know, this was fought out in the streets in, in these immigrant neighborhoods as well. And as I said before, it was a very difficult industry to organize because of all these little shops. It's one thing to go to a factory gate with you know, a couple thousand workers and hand out flyers or, or go to the workers' homes. But to even track down where people were working in this industry was difficult. And these little shops and these little contractors would sometimes close down season to season. They would open up in a different place the next season. And so it was a very difficult um, industry to organize. There was also some violence occasionally. Uh, the, the police in the early days were, were usually on the side of the bosses. And then also there was occasionally some um, mob involvement, especially, I think, in the 1920s when the bosses brought in some gangsters and then the unions brought in their own gangsters to counteract the gangsters of the bosses, there was occasional uh, violence. What were the lives like of the women workers at these factories when they weren't at work? Uh, well, this is, this is actually a complicated issue because uh, clearly they were working class. They were poor people. They were immigrants. They lived in these kind of poor tenement districts. But they were also kind of young American women at the same time, and they definitely knew how to have fun. Uh, dancing was very popular in the early 20th century. There were many, many dance halls around the immigrant neighborhoods, and they would go out at night and, and dance. These dance halls were a little bit disreputable, and sometimes the parents didn't like them to do that. And so there were also more respectable mutual aid societies and fraternal organizations, which the parents belonged to that also sponsored dances for young people, and they would go to each other's dances and so on. They liked to dress well. Uh, they made the clothes. They knew how to make the clothes, and they either bought cheaper versions of what they were making or they made versions themselves to wear. And I think you have to remember also, compared to where they were coming from often, the possibilities for this kind of thing were much greater in New York and the United States. Clothing was very, very symbolic, I think, of the transition from the old country to the new. For women especially, the, I think hats were very symbolic. In the old country, poor women did not wear hats. Uh, they wore shawls. Here, even working-class women would wear very, very fanciful and very, very large hats. And this symbolized to them, I think, the possibilities of America for mobility, or at least just symbolic mobility, that no one had to know walking on the street whether you were poor, whether you were rich. I mean, the, of course, maybe you could tell, but it was a little bit more subtle than it had been. And then also, especially among the Jewish immigrant uh, workers, partly because of the socialist influence, there was a culture of education, self-education, and culture, <laughs> a culture of culture uh, that was very important. And among many workers, uh, lectures in the evening were very, very popular. So you can imagine working uh, 10 hours in a shop, 12 hours in a shop, and in the evening, what do you do? Well, you go to a lecture on almost anything, 
It could have been a lecture on Karl Marx's theory of surplus value, or it could have been a lecture on dental hygiene. Uh, it could have been a lecture on uh, classical music or something on um, the animal kingdom. It almost uh, didn't matter to people. They were very hungry for any kind of knowledge and for understanding the world. And especially the radical movements thought that by giving the workers knowledge, they would empower them. They would raise their horizons and raise their kind of amb ambitions for a better life. Uh, and so there was this side as well. Now, I imagine that some people were into one thing, some people were into another, and some people took part a little bit in, in both. And there were a lot of radical movements that were really working in these communities as well, like sort of more than we would think now. Oh, they were very powerful, especially, well, uh, after the in the decade after the shirtwaist, uh, the Triangle Fire. Triangle Fire was in 1911, as you mentioned. Between 1914 and 1922, the Socialist Party was actually the dominant party in the Jewish immigrant neighborhoods. They elected a congressman from the Lower East Side, Meyer London, who was a lawyer for the garment unions. They elected a number of state assemblymen, a city board of aldermen, a judge even. And so this was actually a powerful movement. It was not a marginal movement at the time. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. A little later this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, a look at obsessive-compulsive disorder. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, we are talking today on Fordham Conversations about the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. My guest is historian Daniel Sawyer. He's the editor of the book A Code of Many Colors, Immigration, Globalization, and Reform in New York City's Garment Industry from Fordham Press. Let's hear the rest of that conversation. Let's move on to speaking more generally about the garment industry in New York. Why did it develop as it did in New York City and not in some other part of the United States or in some other country? What were the, what were the things that were at the ready to help it develop as it did? Well, at the basis of almost everything in New York is the sea and the seaport. And I think that this is very, very crucial for the development of New York as a garment center in a lot of different ways. First of all, the garment industry has always thrived, as it still does today, off of cheap labor. And now, as everyone knows, a lot of this cheap labor takes place overseas, and the garments are imported. But in those days, you could look at it almost the opposite. The, the labor was imported, and the garments were made here. But the status of New York as a seaport, and therefore as, an, as a center, as the largest, by far the largest, port of entry for immigrants made this a center where there was uh, a, a lot of cheap labor available, and this supplied the workers for the industry. That's one thing. At the same time, New York had already become, had already cornered the market in textile shipping. And this is something which is had several reasons which are possible to understand, and so, sometimes it was just by luck. Almost all textiles were shipped through New York, whether they were made in Europe and imported to the United States, or whether they were made in New England and shipped to Europe. And the cotton, even from the South, which was going to either New England or to England, Old England, to uh, make into cloth, uh, was also shipped through New York. So here it was, the textiles were coming through anyway, the workers were coming through anyway. And then also, the fashions were coming through. Uh, the news from London, the news from Paris of the latest fashions also came first through New York. And also it was a center of capital. So all of the kind of things that you needed for this industry were already centered in New York. And then also there's a kind of disadvantage that New York has for a lot of industries, which it didn't have for garments, and that is space. 
it would be hard to have, say, a plant like the river, the Ford River Rouge plant in Detroit, which takes up acres and acres of space, uh, maybe square miles of space, and, and employed tens of thousands of workers in Manhattan. But you could have all of these tiny shops I described before, and you could they could go up like Manhattan does, right? It could be on the second floor, third floor, fourth floor, et cetera. And so it did not have that disability for this industry. And so for all, the, all of these reasons, New York became a, a garment center. Now, it has almost been 100 years. It's been 97, basically, since this fire. What can we take away from this story today? The important lesson, and I think it's, it is an important one to remember in, in the climate of the last couple of decades, really, the political climate of the last couple of decades, is that I happen to agree that unfettered, unregulated, raw capitalism leads to this kind of exploitation and this kind of disregard for human life. As Rose Schneiderman, who was a labor leader at the Times, said at one of the memorial meetings, she said, you know, money and capital is so sacred, property is so sacred, but the lives of men and women are so cheap. And this is one of the lessons that I think many people learned from the fire and which really were kind of sunk in even more a couple of decades later during the New Deal and during the Depression, but which were kind of unlearned over the decades in which these kinds of protections seemed obvious, I think, to people. I think, you know, since the 1970s, and especially in the 1980s and in the last decade or so, the political climate has been such, and with the fall of communism, people said, well, capitalism, you know, is just good, and therefore the free market should be cut loose and uh, it regulates itself the best. Uh, but I think that in, in some ways it doesn't. And uh, that checks on the market, whether through unions or whether through government regulation, are actually very important in maintaining a kind of a human, human face on the system and the ability of, of, of workers to lead a decent life. I think that should be a lesson that people still derive from the Triangle Fire. I'll ask you one more question, and I will close with this. What are the Triangle Shirtwaist companies of today? What are the, the real flashpoints where labor conditions might be likely to lead to something dramatic happening? Well, um, it's. I think the garment in- industry is still that, but it's not happening here. There are also occasional disasters in other countries. We don't hear about them. They, t- they take place in uh, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh. And China, where, of course, we're not going to hear about it very easily, the garment industry always has the, is very price conscious, always trying to drive down the costs. And uh, there's always a lot of pressure in this direction. And one of the reasons why they left the country is to escape this kind, kind of uh, regulation. And uh, so now there's also pressure on them from the, in, you know, to, to improve conditions. But certainly this kind of thing goes on all the time in these other countries while they're producing goods for the American market. I think within the country, uh, you certainly see these things in in meatpacking plants. Uh, I think there's been a lot of um, actually talk about this uh, lately in terms of meatpacking plants, but also as, again, the pressure to produce things cheaply uh, happens, uh, it could happen in almost any kind of industry. Food, of course, this happens also in, in, in places where there are factories, but there are factories in the fields, as one author put it, uh, workers picking crops in California and Florida and places like that, who also suffer from maybe slightly different kinds of bad conditions, but bad conditions as well. I think also in industries where there are a lot of immigrants, 
And there are, of course, controversies of how to deal with this, especially with uh, illegal immigrants. And people are scared to come forward about the conditions or they're scared to join the union because they might be deported. Uh, This is always a danger. Well, Daniel Sawyer is an associate professor of history at Fordham, and he is the editor of A Code of Many Colors, Immigration, Globalization, and Reform in New York's Garment Industry. Daniel Sawyer, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. WFUV. This has been Fordham Conversations. Next week on the show, going to the movies during the Great Depression. The show is available as a podcast at WFUV.org, and it's in our audio archive. You can find that on our website as well. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us. Our address is Fordham Conversations at WFUV.org, and we would, of course, love to hear from you. Producing the show this week with help from Liz Brockland, I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening. Have a fabulous weekend and a happy St. Patrick's Day. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.